Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. All right, this is a very special episode of Fever Dreams because it's our final one for guests, or excuse me, it's our final one for for (laughs) co-host Swin. Swin, your last episode. I hope you really brought some heat today. How are you feeling? Well, I'm feeling a little bit less great than I was at the beginning of this recording session since you referred to me as a guest host for my final episode. But setting that aside for a moment, to be perfectly honest with uh, all of you and the listeners, I am getting a little bit misty-eyed here. Um, I've loved doing this with all of you for the past year plus, and I'm going to miss it like a lost limb. But... I'm going to do my very best not to disappoint everybody for my last Fever Dreams recording session here as a co-host. And also, I'm going to do my very best to inaugurate my successor, Kelly Weil, into the fold. Kelly, are you with us? I am here. You know, Swin, I've been on this podcast like every now and then, and we always joke that I'm overthrowing you in a coup. But I have to say that if this is a successful coup, it is the biggest self-own because we're going to miss you like hell, buddy. Like It's like that picture of Wario online that says, I won, but at what cost? (laughs) (laughs) Am I like Waluigi in this context? I'm not sure where this metaphor is going, but uh, Swin... Man, we're really going to miss you. The fact that I'm not up to date on any of those uh, super current um, Nintendo references just goes to show why I'm no longer worthy of being the second (laughs) co-host of the Daily Beast podcast, Fever Dreams, just to keep things short so we can actually get to the meat and nitty gritty of the episode. It really has been an honor. Listeners who've stuck around and sent us uh, your love notes and your hate mail, thank you so much for your time. I'll always cherish it. And let's get to it. Let's get to the Kelly Weil era of things. All right. So here on Fever Dreams, you know, I like to keep folks up to date on, quote, documentaries they're going to be hearing about uh, from from their uh, kooky relatives. You may have heard of Dinesh D'Souza's movies, or people have urged you to watch Fall of Cabal or Plandemic, all these kind of wacky videos that go around on Facebook. Uh, and so now, I, you know, I just wanted to give a little Fever Dream uh, pro tip. Uh, people, You might be hearing soon from folks about a new documentary called watch the water and this one is is wacky even by the standards of the stuff we normally cover here uh swin and kelly have y'all had a chance to watch watch the water you know i missed it in my uh, film club we were we were watching the criterion collection instead yeah i, I think this was nominated for the the documentary oscar but did not win it <laughs> is this the m night Shyamalan movie with paul giamatti <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, I it, it's funny you say that. I was I had always kind of missed the M Night Shyamalan train, and then I was like, all right, now I'm going to get into it. I'm going to see Lady in the Water. That was not the one to get in on. Anyway, so the uh, right, so watch <clears throat> the water. Let, let me set this up for folks for. Stu Peters, who's sort of this right-wing internet host we've covered before, he has been an on-and-off bounty hunter. Uh, one of his bounties resulted in, I think, three or four people being shot dead uh, when it, it sort of went south. I've written all about it on the thedailybeast.com. Uh, but anyways, he's now reinvented himself as a real, like, real wacko online t- uh, talk radio host. Uh, but what's odd about it is he still has some amount of clout. Uh, Mark Meadows went on his show, where Stu Peters pretty uh, soundly roasted him. So this is the guy we're dealing with. So for a while, Stu Peters and his allies have been talking about this new documentary Stu has called Watch the Water, which incidentally is a QAnon catchphrase as well. So that's kind of the milieu we're working in. So Watch the Water comes out, um, and you know one of these doctors, Zelenko, Dr. Zelenko, who was big into hydroxychloroquine, was promoting it, and he was like... This this documentary is gonna get. They they tried to murder the the, the star of this documentary, uh, this guy named Brian Doctor Artis. And so finally, this documentary comes out last night. I obviously queued it up instantly in 4K. I'm sitting down to watch it, and it turns out it's just Stu Peters interviewing this guy, this doctor, who says essentially that the vaccine is made from snake blood and is meant to turn us into snakes and uh and also turn us give us satanic dna i'm gonna need to hear a clip from uh, the trailer for this documentary this right now a lot now. of you may remember a post that i made on my telegram channel there was a lot of concern about the water and not to drink it and there were certain things that i could say and could not say and i referenced that certain people's lives might be at risk and one of those people is here with me now dr brian artist thanks a lot for being here this is actually going to be the only time I've ever been nervous in any interview. I'm not kidding. Like, I've never been nervous to discuss anything in relationship to the COVID pandemic whatsoever. But this has bothered me and has scared me. But what's funny about it, too, is like this guy, this was very, this was very hyped up on, on the right wing Internet. And what's funny about it is, you know, you, you think you might come to a scene like this, you know, pretty big accusation. You might think you'd come to it really prepared. But this guy is kind of like, so then I thought. What if it's snake DNA? Turns out it might be. You know, he, he's not really, really putting his back into it. But nevertheless, the, you know, there's a lot of debate whether it's cobra DNA. Is it crate snake DNA? But, I mean, this is the – it sort of gives you a glimpse of the ideas that are taken off. This thing's trending on Twitter right now with like 15,000 mentions. It's really uh, it's really blown up on the right. This is a, this is great. This I've, I've been rallying to like reboot the Animorphs series. So if, you know, if, if I can kind of bring <laughs> this back in in a positive light, I think this could work for me. <laughs> it's like me after getting the vaccine. It's like the thing where your face is just morphing. <laughs> oh, man. Never forget that Animorph who got stuck as a falcon. Very sad story. All right, gang, should we move on? Please. All right, so Kelly, you've been keeping track of the intrigues in the Colorado Republican Party, one that that sort of, you know, I, I was going to say is surprisingly for the amount of kind of craziness it throws off, but it seems like these days every state Republican Party has thrown off uh, plenty of wacky tales. What's going on there? Oh, absolutely. So the state of the Colorado Republican Party is much the same as a lot of other state GOPs, which are wrapped with this debate over whether to be a nominally mainstream conservative institution or just the batshit Stop the Steal franchise. It's definitely among the top 50 of batshit state Republican parties in the country. I'll give it that. Any batshit Republican party that has like a a Cobra Venom DNA conspiracy is like, that's enough, I think. So, you know, it's interesting. 
there is a wacky faction of this GOP, and it's really vying for supremacy over a slightly more normal faction. One of the leading wackos is a longtime friend of Fever Dreams, Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters, who is currently facing multiple felony charges for an alleged scheme to steal a local IT guy's identity, then use that to break into voter machines and leak those to conspiracy theorists like Mike Lindell and Ron Watkins. And just to be clear, there's no relation between Stu and Tina. No, no. Oh, man. I mean, if I were a conspiracy theorist right now, I would start drawing, you know, all the, the maps with the connections, but not to my knowledge. So this is a person, I mean, we're talking about someone who, uh, you know, after this, you know, being investigated for maybe tampering with voting machines, I mean, she went into hiding, she was being hidden somewhere by Mike Lindell. It was a whole thing. But but now her political fortunes are somehow looking up. That's right. And so, listen, Tina Peters' political fortunes were kind of rock bottom before all this scandal broke. She oversaw some local elections, by all counts, did a piss poor job of it, left ballots sitting out in the rain for several months, just, you know, (laughs) not... (laughs) Really great work. Nevertheless, now that her star is ascendant, she is running for the state secretary of state, which would oversee all of Colorado's elections. And so after she got charged with all these felonies last month, the state GOP, I think, very reasonably said, like, hey, yo, can you suspend your campaign? Because this kind of looks bad for us. She didn't do that. And this weekend was the Colorado GOP's state assembly, where they basically decide who's going on the primary ballot. It's also a much better temperature check of how that party is really feeling. And she got more support than any other secretary of state candidate there. So that's, um, shall we say, a little grim for party sentiment. And she wasn't even the weirdest candidate in contention there. Do you guys know someone named Joe Oltman? You know, I have the pleasure. This guy is definitely an all-timer. I mean, to set this guy up for folks, this is a guy who came out of nowhere in the 2020 election and said, I believe shortly after it, he said, um, yeah, I was infiltrating Antifa and I was on an Antifa conference call and they said this guy named Eric was going to steal the election for them. Well, there's this guy who works at Dominion Voting called Eric. So mm, I'm pretty sure I caught him. And people say, wow, do you have a recording of this? And he said, no. <laughs> Eric, you know, it's Eric. Everyone knows Eric. (laughs) So, I mean, yeah, Joe Altman is now being rightfully sued by the Eric that he accused, as well as Dominion voting machines, which he implicated in this plot. And I mean, listen, this this guy is not just making wild conspiracy theories. He's, you know, calling for hanging deaths related to them. He's called for the death of Colorado's current Democratic governor. Um, But at this convention this weekend, People actually nominated Joel Altman to run against the Democratic governor, and he had to turn down that nomination. That's really where the party is right now. Why would he ever turn that down? Oh, you know, there's just he's a he's a humble man. um, And, you know, just you have to keep serving the people via making increasingly ludicrous podcasts, I think, rather than holding elected office. This is we're sort of in a position where, like, the posters are taking over the over the party. I mean, the the online the you have all these like personalities who are just sort of bouncing around. and, And I mean, where are the you wonder where like the actual politicians are in all of it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's not just the case in Colorado state politics. I mean, it's national too. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a born again poster. I mean, she's not even on any committees because she posted too hard. Um, Madison Cawthorn, he's he's pretty much admitted it. He doesn't really have many legislative staff. He's just there to 
to post and accidentally accuses colleagues of doing cocaine orgies. Kelly, I mean, you know, one thing that might come up in this Secretary of State race is that Tina Peters, along with all the other alleged, you know, election interference she did, there was also an incident in a bagel restaurant. Now, people might think, is this the bagel boss? Is that when that little guy got so mad? No, this is another incident. (laughs) Kelly, can you catch us up to speed on this? The spark notes here is that there are basically three unrelated or tangentially related Tina Peters criminal cases going on right now. In one of them, they were trying to seize uh, an iPad that she had because she may have accidentally recorded crimes on it. They apprehended her at a bagel restaurant where um, she did not go quietly and uh, is accused of kicking a police officer while fighting over an iPad. So she's, um, I, I think the legal term is kind of in some deep shit right now. Also, not to pile on, but last week, her friend Mike Lindell accidentally threw her even further under the bus. He claims to have donated up to $800,000 to her legal defense fund. In Colorado, there are pretty strict laws about how public officials like Tina Peters can accept money. There is a $65 cap on donations, which is a little less. If were to take his sum at face value, he overshot it a little bit. Just, a, you know, just by a, a, a couple multiples of, you know, 100,000. So w- w- what's the penalty for uh, committing an offense like that? So I was chatting with actual legal experts in Colorado, and they said basically there's two ways to go about prosecuting her if this Lindell claim is true. They can get her for campaign finance violations, which is a little less sexy, but, you know, it's it's one way of doing it. The other is if she violated a state gift ban, she has to pay it back in uh, twice over. So that would be a $1.6 million fine for uh, keeping the Lindell cash. All that pillow money comes with strings, folks. Watch out. (laughs) So, you know, the other thing I, the other thing I, I, I wanted to point out here about Tina Peters is that this is the just sort of one item of true wackos, often QAnon-affiliated, running for Secretary of State positions, um, and sometimes having a pretty good chance of winning them. And obviously, why does this matter, right? Because Secretary of States often have big powers over elections. So, you know, in Arizona, we have a guy. Uh, in California, the one of the leading Republicans is uh, QAnon-affiliated. Um, and th- a lot of these people are working together. They've been organized by this guy. I, I wrote about this on the Daily Beast, if people check out uh, a story about a guy named Juan O'Savin, which is an alias for... The number is 107. Don't ask me why. These guys love their numbers. A guy who is one of several JFK Jr. impersonators out there, uh, but he's really tight with Roseanne Barr, and he has in he has used his powers to sort of recruit an entire slate of QAnon Secretary of State candidates across the country. And some of them, you know, look at least like they're going to win the Republican nominations in these battleground states. I, I would say in Arizona, it's very likely that his pick is going to win. You know, even if you get one or two of these people through, I think we're looking at plenty of controversies ahead. They're winning, or at least coming close to winning in all these different races, because fundamentally, however wacky they seem to the layman, they agree in large part with the mainstream center-of-center Republican quote-unquote establishment position that the election is not legitimate unless we win. There isn't that much daylight between their two opposing positions, except one sounds a little bit more like Cartoon Network and the other one sounds a little bit more like the Lifetime Movie Network. Yeah, I mean, it's like the mainstream Republican Party doesn't care if, you know, one of these Secretary of States is like, and I won't let the serpent people vote. It's like, all right, that's fine. Sounds great. Right. (laughs) But you know what's so funny is that these trends often come back 
to bite the nominally mainstream Republicans because at this assembly meeting I was talking about, they had their, you know, normal chairwoman get up on stage and one of the would-be uh, candidates who didn't make it on the ballot goes up there and tries to crash her on stage, starts accusing her of fraud. This woman's supporters start threatening her. Apparently, one of her supporters threatened to beat up the chairman's dad, which is such a niche threat. Was the dad there? Or is he like, I'm going to find your dad? Did they know the dad like they used to carpool together back in the day? You know, I, I'm not sure. I haven't investigated this um, threat a lot. It's just it's very, you know, it's very playground. My dad's going to beat up your dad, um, which I respect. But it's, you know, it, it's something that the Republican Party is going to have to contend with because these people aren't stopping when they uh, defeat the uh, the the lamestream libs. They're coming straight for the top of the party. OK, um, moving on to a race in a different state. Let's uh, head over to Pennsylvania for a little while. How much have you guys been getting in to the latest in Dr. Oz momentum in the great state of Pennsylvania? Well, I'm a fan of Dr. Oz's medical positions, but but I don't know about his politics here. Swain, you've been doing some reporting here. I mean, the, the Pennsylvania Senate race in the Republican side has been shaken up by uh, Donald Trump endorsing Dr. Oz. Well, just to back it up for a moment, you mentioned, oh, you might be a fan of his flamboyant uh, pseudo-medical TV personality, but you don't know that much about his politics. Even hardcore and habitual political observers wouldn't necessarily blame you for making that assessment as a, as a reporter, just given the fact that Dr. Oz, beyond being a pro-Trump celebrity who seems to want to have political power because he's a celebrity, doesn't seem to have much of a conservative policy platform. Yes, he has thrown himself into the occultism of Donald Trump and MAGA, and you could reasonably argue that that is enough to make up a policy program for the modern-day GOP. But in terms of being a doctrinaire conservative with conservative roots going back years or decades, there isn't that much there. He's just another famous TV guy who's seeking the endorsement and got it of yet another famous TV guy. It's just that the second famous TV guy happened to be president of the United States for four years. Wasn't he a big hydroxychloroquine guy? I mean, that's sort of a conservative bonafide at this part. Oh, my God. My God. During the early part of the coronavirus pandemic in uh, 2020, yes, he was um, a very prominent, very visible promoter of hydroxychloroquine, jumping on that bandwagon, basically uh, selling it as a miracle cure for the country, obviously a long time before we had COVID-19 vaccines. And he would do a lot of this not necessarily on his own syndicated TV show, but he would be invited frequently onto the airwaves of, you guessed it, Fox News, where the hosts would goad him into uh, giving soliloquy after soliloquy about why hydroxychloroquine was so promising and maybe so great. Would it surprise you that in doing so, he really caught the attention of then leader of the free world, Donald Trump? Just by virtue of being on Fox News, we did some reporting on this at the time, that he so thoroughly enraptured Trump that Trump would call senior administration officials and public health honchos into the Oval Office repeatedly to tell them that you need to get on the phone with Dr. Oz. He has a lot of things to say about this miracle drug, hydroxychloroquine, that's going to save the country. So now that Trump has endorsed him, I mean, what has this done at the race? How are Republicans reacting to it? It's led to a good number of public fissures within Trump land over people who are deeply disappointed that he did not endorse the Dr. Oz rival, David McCormick, who is the was the other leading 
Pennsylvania Republican Senate candidate. They were both pretty habitually vying for Trump's endorsement. David McCormick made uh, the expected pilgrimages to try to uh, personally win over Donald Trump, or at least to try to get him to promise to stand down and not publicly endorse Dr. Oz. Obviously, that failed. And David McCormick is someone who had the support and had been employing a lot of former Trump administration hands and Trump confidants, like Hope Hicks was working for David McCormick. But someone who Dr. Oz had in his corner this whole time, who for weeks, if not months, has been relentlessly pushing Donald Trump behind the scenes to go out and endorse their dear friend is, you guessed it, Melania Trump. We can confirm with multiple sources familiar with the matter that she has been vociferous in telling her husband Donald that you gotta endorse the TV quack. You know, this really kind of gels with, I think, her QVC aesthetic. It's a very, um, you know, I'm, I'm gonna buy brain pills from the nice man who tells me to buy them on the TV. I feel like it's a very cohesive, just kind of vibe for the Trump family. It doesn't surprise me that he endorsed Oz. Okay, like his policy prescriptions aside, because it's not really clear what he actually believes besides Donald Trump is so great and the Democratic Party is riddled with Antifa or whatever. Have you ever sat down to try to watch Dr. Oz, someone who for years was heavily propped up by uh, uh, A-listers like Oprah? I never have. I just see him every single time I go to the supermarket and have to stand in the aisle of uh, National Enquirer and TV Guide. Maybe I'm being too harsh on the guy, but whenever I've tried to watch him and I have tried to study his like reams of footage going back years just to see if I can get the political appeal of it. Maybe his uh, secret sauce is suburban wine moms in Pennsylvania who have loved his show for so long. I do not get it. I have always seen him as like this complete zero, but I guess I'm not the target audience. He, he works for a lot of Republican voters, apparently. The interesting thing here is that this this endorsement really made a lot of erstwhile Trump allies spitting mad because they see Dr. Oz as a pretty crummy candidate. Uh, and so you have Roger Stone saying, you know, Trump endorsed this guy. You know, I'm reading here from a story from our colleague, Zach Patrizzo, Kurt Schlichter, who's sort of a um, second civil war enthusiast, I would say, uh, is kind of his, his bit, is a guy who says, it's hard for me to express how disappointed I am in Trump. So people have really been uh, quite riled up by this move. Right. And uh, one of the people who is come out to say that they believe Dr. Oz is actually the antithesis of everything that made Trump, in their rather twisted view, the best president of their lifetime, is Sean Parnell, who was supposed to be the guy in Pennsylvania. He was a candidate who was full-throatedly endorsed by Donald Trump. He had to drop out because of uh, really nasty and violent allegations that were being made against him by his uh, estranged ex-wife. Right, so so Sean Parnell here, he's the one who's supposed to get invited to the dance. He's watching. He's like, this should have been me. I was going to coast into this Senate seat. And now I'm facing these domestic abuse allegations, so my career has exploded. And then Trump chooses probably the guy he would least like, Dr. Oz, and he's going off. He's like, you know, I got a lot of respect for Trump. Oh, but this is what, a big, what a terrible decision. I mean, the thing we're seeing over and over here is this kind of like the, the emperor uh, is never wrong. It's his it's his vizier. And so there's a lot of these guys being like <laughs> the sinister Trump staffers, you know, have betrayed us once again. Where do you think this race is headed? I mean, do we think uh, the Trump endorsement is going to carry Dr. Oz to victory in the primary? Or do you think uh, these other candidates, David McCormick, for one, uh, still has some juice in them? Might be too early to tell, but I am more confident in Dr. Oz's chances now than I've ever been before. It will be interesting to see if 
the narrative does get written as, oh, this endorsement sealed the deal for Dr. Oz, because we are already seeing that time and time and time again, not every time, but way too many times to make Trump comfortable as his professed status of a modern day Republican kingmaker. We've seen so many of his endorsements and endorsees just eat shit in their 2022 uh, primaries. The funniest one being Mo Brooks, who very recently Trump unendorsed him because simply because Mo Brooks was tanking too much in the polls. But Trump then hilariously stabbed Mo Brooks in the back by claiming that he had gone too woke by not being as hellishly anti-democratic as Trump wanted him to be in terms of overturning the 2020 presidential election. I don't think Dr. Oz pulling it out in this primary is going to rebuild sort of this uh, fractured image of a bulletproof Republican kingmaker too much. But, you know, it, it, it couldn't hurt the Donald, I guess. Okay. All right, Swin, who do we have for this week's interview on Fever Dreams? Okay. Well, since this is the last time I'm ever going to get the opportunity to introduce a guest on this podcast, we obviously want to bring on someone truly special. Uh, Next up, you'll be hearing from Taylor Lorenz, an ace Washington Post reporter and columnist who's been busy investigating the noisy intersection between tech and politics. Stick around. It's going to be a fun one. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week, we're incredibly excited to welcome Taylor Lorenz in her Fever Dreams debut. Uh, Taylor is an alumnus of not only such publications as The New York Times, The Atlantic, and The Hill, but also of this plucky little upstart magazine known as The Daily Beast. Nowadays, you'll find her in the pages of The Washington Post, where she covers technology, politics, and the online culture wars. You can also follow her on Twitter.com, at Taylor Lorenz. Taylor! Welcome to Fever Dreams. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. How are you feeling being back at your old stomping ground, the Daily Beast? I love it. I miss it. I was actually with Ben Collins and Brandy Zagrazny just last night. And talking about how horrifically poor decisions you made ever leaving us. I know that's a weird thing for me to say right now, but anyway. (laughs) 
Okay, so Taylor, you you have a recent story for the Washington Post about how Facebook hired a Republican campaign operative firm called Targeted Victory to basically smear the good folk over at TikTok. If you could just run down that story for us and how it relates to something called the Slap a Teacher Challenge. Sure. Um, so the Slap a Teacher Challenge is a non-existent challenge that was basically this conspiracy that, oh, kids on TikTok, you know, the latest teen trend on, on TikTok is... Uh, kids slapping their teachers. This was a rumor that actually went viral on Facebook last fall. And I reported along with Drew Harwell, my colleague, how Facebook had been actually hired Targeted Victory to amplify rumors like this in local press. So they worked with tons of consulting firms around the country to basically push out stories that were sort of smearing TikTok in different ways and attributing these fear-mongering rumors that were spreading on Facebook to TikTok. Dude, I, I love this because this is such a glass houses issue, right? So many like scaremongering trends are really organic on Facebook. It'll start with like a local sheriff being like, careful, kids are going to break into the school tonight and, uh, you know, steal precious belongings or like Momo is going to come on your kid's iPad and tell them to worship the devil. Like that is a legit issue that Facebook has and they're trying to export it onto another site. Exactly. These are all issues that Facebook needs to deal with. And also just the irony of Facebook paying to amplify misinformation in local news is hilarious. One of the things that struck me about this reporting of yours is, uh, I, I don't know how many of our listeners are familiar with uh, Targeted Victory's handiwork. They've been around for a long time. They are um, a premier uh, Republican PR shop in the Washington, D.C. area. But one of the things that interests me about stories like this is, if you s rewind the clock back to not very long ago at all, back to the middle and late Obama era, Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg went out of their way to try to portray themselves as kind of a liberal behemoth. There was a Mark Zuckerberg-founded group that was playing itself up as if comprehensive immigration reform gets done in the Obama era, we are going to big a, be a big part of that story being consummated. Obviously, we know exactly what way uh, that went. But with 2016 and then the election and then presidency of Donald Trump, would you agree with me that Facebook has kind of taken a nosedive in its reputation among liberal corners? Am I saying that Facebook is the same thing as the RNC or the NRSC? No, I'm not. But there is a pandering to uh, conservatism coursing through Facebook's veins right now that I don't remember existing back during the middle and late Obama era. Yeah. It's become very clear in recent years that Facebook over-amplifies conservative voices and right-wing information. Um, the biggest news figures on Facebook are people like Dan Bongino and Ben Shapiro and these right-wing media figures. Um, the idea that it's, you know, good for liberals at all, I think, is has been kind of myth-busted, and it overwhelmingly favorites, uh, favors conservative voices. So... You know, Facebook obviously has this conservative problem, but I feel like there is at least an image of TikTok as being younger and more liberal, which is why it's so funny for me to hear about things like Republican hype houses on TikTok. Is that a real phenomena? And can you run that down for us? Yeah, I wrote about this a couple of years ago, but there's this rising class of political pundits on TikTok. And they're also overwhelmingly pretty right leaning, to be honest. Um, there are, of course, like liberal, you know, groups on TikTok too and leftists. But you mentioned the Republican Hype House, uh, which is one. There's a bunch of sort of conservative leaning collaborative groups on TikTok of young people um, that are very 
pro-Trump, very right-wing, and use the platform to spread their messaging. I mean, look at the rise of people like Christian Walker, you know, Herschel Walker's son, who's extremely flamboyant, but, you know, very conservative, uses TikTok to grow his audience, and he's kind of a TikTok celebrity now. You know, he has a huge liberal fan base because people think he's funny. (laughs) He is really funny. Uh, I don't think any of it is intentional, (laughs) but he is incredible. I don't think any of it's intentional. I mean, he's funny, but it's also a little bit worrying because you do start to see people starting to normalize certain kind of bigotry and ideology in a way, almost. It's like a lot of this stuff, as we've known from studying radicalization for years, it can start as irony and kind of seep into pop culture and the way that we talk about things. So. Yeah, I mean, it's a complete misconception. Give us an example of what you're talking about there in terms of like extremism on the uh, uh, on the TikTok platform. I I mean, I know we were just talking about things that we can find perhaps unintentionally amusing, but you seem to be flicking at something that is a little bit more there's a little darker, a little bit more perverse. Yeah, I mean, TikTok is overrun with right wing extremism um, and right wing misinformation. I mean, it's where you saw a lot of election fraud conspiracies spread. I think TikTok, the users on TikTok have zero media literacy. Like it's it's actually horrifying. You know, if you thought boomers clicking links on Facebook was bad, it's nothing compared to TikTok. The format itself of TikTok um, lends itself really easily to misinformation. It's mostly just people talking to their camera. And so people who watch that content, it, they form more of a bond with the person. Like you really believe the people that are that come up on your screen, but it's completely unvetted and unverified you know, information. That's why you see these things come up like that Wayfair conspiracy, right? And take so long to be negated. Even big content creators today will still maintain that, yes, Wayfair was selling children, um, which is what the conspiracy that spread last year on TikTok. It was that Wayfair, which was selling, you know, cabinets for $15,000, sort of industrial cabinets that had children's names. The idea is that those, that was actually child sex trafficking, you know, and it was sort of feeding into a lot of these QAnon conspiracies. Stuff like that spreads on TikTok all the time. You also see a lot of big right-wing figures using TikTok more, having, you know, basically TikTok editors cut up their segments for a more right-wing audience. Obviously, Turning Point USA works with a ton of these young influencers to spread right-wing messaging. It's just, it's all over the app. Taylor, if you could expand on this idea of the TikTok users have no media literacy, I mean, what are some of the craziest things you've seen really take off there? Oh my God. I mean, it's shocking. I think there's so many reasons why we have this perfect confluence of things. I mean, this one TikTok creator I know, his his bio literally says like I make up lies and or something. <laughs> and it, he posts this video and and he posts this insane video about how he's he you know every video is different. He's just making up nonsense and he does this one video where he's like I was a par- private jet captain and I was flying over the Gulf of Mexico when I my you know client gave me some coffee and I fell asleep and I woke up and he took over the plane and he was flying us to Aruba or something. The video is literally hashtag lies. I made this up or something is the caption. And thousands of comments are just like, wow, really? Wow. And I was talking (laughs) to him about it. And he's like, yeah, people just believe there's no understanding of anything. And anybody can say anything on TikTok and it will be believed. I mean, this is something that content creators have, have, um, flagged time and time again and and big people on TikTok talk about. But the problem is there aren't really journalists using TikTok. There aren't academics. You know, it's not like Twitter where there's this kind of like professional class of people whose job it is to dispel misinformation. It's like, yeah, I guess like Media Matters is on there, you know, a little bit, but 
there's almost no one debunking stuff. So stuff just kind of spreads and spreads until maybe it's debunked in the media eventually. But even then, it really never makes its way back onto the platform. Do you think we need to sign up for TikTok? Yes. I find it too addicting. I had to delete it on my phone because I was just spending my life on it. I've, it reminds me of like being in a casino and like just just the content like spinning in front of my eyes forever. And I wake up, I'm like, is it like 2 a.m.? Like, what have I done for the past five hours? Right. And you can't see. I mean, it's designed that way. Like there's no, you know, once you're in the app, you don't see the the time on the top of your phone at all. It's literally like a casino. It's literally hidden. Exactly. You don't know if it's day or night. Before we move on to another story you authored uh, last month, I want to ask if you had to name the top one or top two right-wing TikTok stars, who would it be? You mentioned that Dan Bongino is kind of a king of Facebook conservative news along with people like Ben Shapiro. Who are the uh, name names for who those two guys would be on TikTok? Oh, God, that's a really good. I mean, there was Lance videos, obviously, Christian Walker. A lot of these people were involved in the the, the kind of the, they were trying to create their own sort of movement and with people named like Morgone and stuff. I, I, I remember Lance teaming <laughs> oh, up with Republican Morgone. Oh, the Republican Hype House. The Republican well, Hype yes. House. Yes, exactly. And TikTok Republicans, there was the conservative Hype House, conservatively Hype House. I mean, there's so many of them. There was Nick videos, although he's pivoted like a hundred times in terms of his political ideology. But it's a lot of right wing people. I mean, there's there's a lot of um, people on Twitter too, like right wing conservative young people have hopped on TikTok. And by the way, and and to, to almost zero media scrutiny, right? You saw New York Magazine wrote a glowing, just the most insane thing I've ever read. Talk about how to not cover internet culture. They literally wrote like this puff piece on Christian Walker, like he's owning the libs on TikTok. Wow, we stand a you know a Zoomer uh, king like it's just <laughs> it's just insane. Um, whereas it's I guess I mean sort of similar things happened in the early days of Facebook, but it's like now we know better and we're not really seeing that same level of media criticism applied to these big right leaning TikTokers. I think because the media is not on TikTok. There's also a lot of big accounts that aggregate like liberals. It's like owning the liberals accounts. You know, there's that Twitter account too, like libs of TikTok or whatever, which was cited on, I think Tucker Carlson cited it recently. Did you see that? Yes. Taylor, can you expand on the the, the importance of this? This is a Twitter account and perhaps it's on TikTok as well called libs of TikTok. And I feel like this has become sort of the shadow agenda setter of the American right, this single account. Yes. It's so funny you say that because I literally just pitched a story kind of about some of this stuff. This account has basically gained a a bunch of prominence by surfacing content on TikTok, a lot of it parody, aimed at kind of like outraging the right. So you see a lot of these like TikTok videos bubble up and used in conservative media where suddenly they're on Fox News or whatever because of this Twitter account and and they're on TikTok. I mean, there's a few accounts like this, but that's like the main one. It's like the videos of the blue-haired barista that wants healthcare or whatever you know, libs act, acting crazy, like cringy neoliberal type people. And it, anyway, it's it's constantly used for sort of fodder by the right wing media, which then hops on these videos or hops on these trends as some evidence of something. I mean, they're doing what, what Facebook exactly wanted targeted victory do to do is like, wow, look at this platform or look at this, you know, look at these insane people, look at this crazy stuff. Now let's write up news stories. It's been huge, I think. Would we have the the sort of groomer allegations in Florida if not for the libs of TikTok account? I mean, I may be overstating it, but basically they find, you know, they, they love to find teachers with blue hair who are saying, you know, I'm my kids asked me what my deal is. And I said I'm pansexual or something. And then it's like this person's going to teach your kid. Yeah, 
Exactly. And it's, it's a lot about, I mean, it's a lot about like child panic. They, they do a lot of stuff with teachers. Teachers are demanding we use the right pronouns or whatever, you know, it's basically just aggregating stuff that feeds into the right wing outrage machine. And it's very effective at that. And read my story when it comes out about this, (laughs) but yes, it's, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of accounts like this, by the way, it's basically, I mean, on TikTok, these accounts are, they sort of aggregate the most cringy liberal videos for then big conservative um, people to duet, you know, which is sort of just giving you, you do a reaction video to it almost. So it's kind of, it's, it's like they're providing content that tees up a reaction very well. Gotcha. It reminds me of like maybe 10 years ago, this would have been a a response video or like a video of a college student freaking out at Ben Shapiro or something. And you know, it's a little bit cringy, right? It's obviously someone who's 18 and doesn't really have a full grasp of how to debate in the public sphere or whatever, but now it's more condensed and it's more tied to this political platform and people demand action based on it. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And this is just the way things are moving, right? Like you mentioned how it would have been 10 years ago. I mean, there's, there was tons of viral content like this on YouTube. It's just that average people were not creating this mass amount of video content. So you would have things like, you know, Dasha from Red Scare or whatever, you know, saying Alex Jones has brain worms and that would be like a viral clip for the left or something, or there'd be, you know, some viral, uh, what was that woman that was running around with a gun? Caitlin Bennett, the gun girl. Caitlin Bennett, you know, there'd be clips of her, but there weren't like, you know, average teachers in Florida, for instance, weren't really creating video content and putting it for mass consumption on the internet. And TikTok has done that. It's, it's encouraged everyone to just create free video content, basically, that can be then weaponized by the worst people on the internet. Shifting over to the other end of the political spectrum on TikTok, I want to read a headline from a story you had in the Washington Post last month. The headline reads, the White House is briefing TikTok stars about the war in Ukraine. Explain to us what you found in this reporting and also what it says about the broader implications about how governments, not just America's government, uh, try to recruit major celebrities and influencers on these platforms to essentially help them win these gigantic international propaganda wars when the stakes are immeasurably high. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, the headline is kind of exactly what happened, which is uh, the White House is briefing TikTok stars about Ukraine. Um, And, you know, you have to think of it again as TikTok and these social platforms being the new media. When you look at the media landscape now, it's these big content creators like Dan Bongino, like Ben Shapiro, like some of these figures on TikTok. Those, Those are the people that are going to define the news cycle. They're going to reach the most amount of voters or constituents or whoever you're looking to talk to. So in terms of Ukraine, a lot of young people were turning to and continue to turn to TikTok for on the ground news events. Um, People are increasingly more likely to get their news directly from social platforms and from content creators on social platforms, not from news organizations, which don't really engage in many of these social platforms in an organic way. So the White House, I think, astutely wanted to reach these people. Obviously, this is something Trump did in his time in office, too, is engage these big content creators. They briefed them, and they had a very sort of traditional press briefing where they sort of, Jen Psaki gave her talk, and then they were able to ask some questions. And then a lot of them went out and created video on it. The White House said, obviously, they did not pay TikTokers to do this, but they really wanted to combat misinformation. And they noticed a lot of big content creators spreading misinformation. So they kind of wanted to get their messaging out. And then you saw Vice reported, you know, the same day as I I had that story that Russia was actually paying um, Russian TikTokers to post 
propaganda. So it is this information war that's being leveraged online. And you can just see that TikTokers, again, are becoming incredibly prominent, important figures in news media. And the legacy media continues to really ignore that. Um, and to, I think to their detriment, obviously, you see the government sort of recognizing it and other people recognizing it. NATO's got to get Zelensky to do the renegade. <laughs> <laughs> it does remind me a little bit of how aggressively the Obama administration back in the day went after A-list celebrities in Hollywood, basically rallying each of them to, to do their own individual Instagram campaigns endorsing the Affordable Care Act, yeah. except this one has to do with an ongoing war in Europe. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about who exactly, which TikTok stars were at this briefing and what kind of content they ended up creating? Yeah, there was people like Ellie Zeiler, um, a lifestyle content creator. There was Jules Turpak, who kind of a Gen Z cultural commentator. Um, she's been doing stuff with Andrew Yang recently as well. It was kind of a mix. I mean, there was um, Lev Parnas's son, Aaron Parnas, who's become a popular news TikToker on Ukraine. He posts updates every 45 minutes, for like over 12 hours a day about what's happening in Ukraine. Um, How would you rate the reliability of his dispatches? I mean, it's as reliable as other TikTokers. I think given his family, it's I think it's funny and interesting, but he's he's not, you know, actively spreading misinformation as far as I can tell. He's pretty much reading the news headlines. He's reading breaking news headlines from like Reuters and stuff for TikTok audience. There's also Khalil Green, who's known as Gen Z historian. He talks a lot about racial issues and inequality stuff. So it was a really, you know, it was a mixed bag, but it was a lot of content creators with large and influential followings. Um, some of them focused on news. Some some of them are just sort of like were more general content creators. To what extent do you think like TikTok users use that platform is their primary source of news. Like, are people looking at TikToks and then doing research elsewhere? Or is they're not doing research elsewhere, unfortunately. <laughs> they look at TikToks and then they, they believe that that is the news. I feel like the kind of TikToks Taylor's describing here is just someone like looking at a head, putting a headline on a green screen behind them and just like shaking their head or something. And people are like, all right. It's the Tim Pool model, except, you know, in yes. 90 mm-hmm. seconds. Exactly, Kelly. Some of them you know, we'll read mainstream news headlines, but a lot of them also, you'll just be like, what site is this? Like, you can't even really tell. Or they're just reading it and it's not behind them on a green screen at all. Like, they're just face to camera. You know, Marcus DiPaolo, who was on that call as well, it's just like, it's his face to the camera. And he writes scripts, but it's none of it's cited. You don't know where this information's coming from. And yet these people are being trusted as authorities, right? When you say being uh, trusted as authorities, Is there any way or any study that can quantify that? Like how many hundreds of thousands or millions of uh, people are we talking here? Well, I mean, TikTok has billions of users. I think we're absolutely talking about millions and hundreds of millions in the U.S. An overwhelmingly younger audience. You know, in terms of data, there is there there are studies on on sort of like digital media, right, and disruption and, and content creators and how users are more likely to trust personalities and sort of people that they know. The younger you are, the more, you know, you're more likely to trust people you know on the internet than just faceless brands. In terms of TikTok and news, you know, TikTok has been really, they've had sort of a cagey relationship with the news. Um, they don't have like a news partnerships person the way that, for instance, Twitter does. I think they're a little bit wary of being seen as a news platform, probably because of the political implications around all of that. I mean, a lot of these videos, a lot of these news videos, breaking news videos, one even from 2020, right? Black Lives Matter, people were covering the protests on the ground. 
people constantly cover breaking news on TikTok and it gets millions and tens of millions of views. So this content is spreading and it's it's often getting a wider reach than, you know, anything you'd ever see on TV. So Taylor, you know, on another topic, you know, we're not afraid to do a little service journalism here at Fever Dreams. You're up on all the cool apps. I have a question for you. Should we be joining Be Real, the hot new app <laughs> no. with, oh with like disappearing pictures where that's like really taken off with college students? Should I be getting on this? Okay. I have been on that app for a very long time. I joined that app like not very long time. I don't know, two months before anyone else, before the hype cycle. I don't know. Did you ever have the app front back? It's almost the same thing. I think that was maybe after my, I mean, to set this up for people, this is a, this is an app that suddenly goes it, like randomly. It's like, take your picture, right? Like th- throughout the day. No. Yeah. It, you know, there was this app called front back years back. That was the same thing almost, but it's, you know, you take one picture from the front, one picture from the back. The idea is look, I'm showing both sides of the camera, the front and the back and be real. It sort of prompts you to post around the same time every day, but you can post whenever you want. I mean, you can post later. It might, I can't, I don't know if it caps you at one. I've never tried to post more than one a day. I think you just post one a day. I just don't really honestly see photo apps. There's, there's always these kind of like ones like dispo, right? Oh, you can only take one photo or, you know, you take a photo and you have to wait 24 hours for it to develop. Like, People keep putting constraints around these weird photo things. I think the era of photo internet is atrophying. I don't see it, you know, another Instagram coming up, like video content and more multimedia content is, is obviously where things are going. So who knows how, be, I mean, Be Real is a very good product. I'll say that it's a good product design. It's an interesting product. All right. I don't have to corner the Be Real market. Everyone always wants like, what's the hot new teen app? It's like, there's so much awareness of that stuff now. And there's so much scrutiny on every little app that gets a bump that like, I'm just kind of like, I'll write about it when it's worth it, in my opinion. Not that it's not cool. And, and it's, it's, it's a cool app. It's fun. I don't know why I'm being a hater on it. I think it's just because people keep telling me to write about it. I'm like, I know, I know that app. Like, what does it say about the world? I don't know. I keep, I don't know. But uh, yeah, I just like the prompts where it's like, I'll be driving and it's like, time to be real. And I'm like, Okay. <laughs> hey, I'm using my phone driving. How real is that? <laughs> Pretty real. It sounds like we've got to delete the uh, Daily Beast Be Real site that we're going to, you know, we're going to do all our youth outreach <laughs> on that now. Damn. This was going to be my move. I'm sure it'll only be a matter of time before there's, you know, Republicans of Be Real. <laughs> <laughs> uh, go ahead, sir. Well, once those crop up, we'll definitely have you back on the show to talk about it. Taylor Lorenz, thank you so much for stopping by. Come by anytime. Thank you. And now for our beloved recurring segment, Fresh Hell, where we tell you about the things that you don't want to know, but are going to have to know in the weeks to come. (laughs) You you didn't buy your indulgences, and now you're going to Fresh Hell. (laughs) I I feel like I'm always just like sitting in the back here of every episode, just like, can't wait to give them Fresh Hell. (laughs) (laughs) Record like a little jingle for it. So wait, hang on. Worse, worse though than that singing is you found a new way to be just even worse than previously known in airports. Can you tell us what you found? Yeah, absolutely. You know, every so often on Fever Dreams, we like to talk about the folk ways of the American right, the crafts, the methods of communication, etc. And and one of them that I wanted to highlight this week is the practice of, you know how you can like page someone at the airport? I guess you could also do this at Walmart. You can page people and say, um, you know, Kelly, you know, come to your flight or what have you. you you've experienced this, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really vintage. It's like for the three remaining people without phone. It is funny. It, it, it is like, like that should be the first tell that something is up when they say, can you page someone like this? So the new thing is, or this has been going on for a little bit, but but sort of sub Rosa. And now, now we at Fever Dreams are bringing it to light. The, the, the practice of basically tricking an airport employee into paging someone, but this person doesn't exist. And instead, you're just saying like, can you page uh, Joe Biden as a child molester? <laughs> and so then they'll say it at the airport and they go, <laughs> it's an, it's a famous Norwegian name. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So, so the, the sort of the ringleader of this, this movement, of course, I mean, the, the sort of the paragon of this is, is let's go Brandon. I mean, let's go Brandon has had like a really rich life of being paged at airports. And I don't know at like, um, at a Chipotle or whatever, like, so the sort of the ringleader of this movement is a gentleman named Brick suit. No, his first name isn't Brick. His his name is Brick Suit because he wears a suit that looks like bricks because he wants to build the wall. And he works for this big YouTube pro-Trump channel. But as he flies in between his Trump rallies, Brick Suit will go up and say, can you page my friend Recall Newsom? And then he'll, he'll, I mean, but it's so funny because like, I'm sure these airport employees are like, that's a messed up name, but I don't want to offend anyone, you know? Congratulations on the beautiful baby boy. What are you going to call him? It's my little recall. recall. Gruesome Newsome. He does this. And then it's kind of like there was this, there's this thing a couple years ago. I think it's kind of tapered off now, but where conservatives would, there was this one guy in Hollywood who would vandalize movie billboards and make it instead, you know, like they would give him a conservative message, but because they didn't want to get officially caught, like it was obviously this one guy he would just post like whoa who did this and it was like it was you that's why you had the picture of it and so in the same way brick suits always like someone at the airport is paging and this is the latest one disney groomer disney groomer and so he he does it and has his little snicker at the cinnabon and these videos i mean they they rack up tens of thousands of views I love it because you know that there is some like terminally underpaid TSA employee who's being made to do this, not even a TSA employee, an airline employee. And it's like, oh, you got them, buddy. That is maybe the 18th worst thing to happen to them that single day. Okay, Mr. Bricksuit, the guy who was one of the ringleaders of this thing. Is this that doofus in that uh Rick suit outfit and tie wearing the MAGA hat, who I think Trump in 2019 and 2020 repeatedly invited on stage with him at political rallies. I mean, that sounds about like seeing it and he's a brick suit. And (laughs) if you Google (laughs) photos of this guy who I think you can just find with Trump brick suit in Google images, it's a brick like what you would find on the side of a firehouse. It does not look like the brick or the materials you would use to build a border wall. No, right. Yes, it's it's not a (laughs) pylon suit. (laughs) It's the the border wall, but it's like the lovely cobbles of downtown Boston. Right, it's like the border wall in in this case would look like Thomas the fucking tank engine. Like what? What is the point of this? It is funny that Brick Suit is sort of like living the terminal lifestyle where he's just like constantly harassing airport employees. He had one where I think they wouldn't let him on a flight and he claimed it was he's they I think they bumped him and he claimed it was discrimination because of his brick suit and all this. This movement <laughs> it harkens back to to sort of earlier folkways, which which it reminded me of something you've written about in the past, Kelly, which is the practice of conservatives at Starbucks giving things like, um, yes, m- put my name on the cup as Mary christmas oh god you know as a as a 
former minimum wage food service employee is just the just most obnoxious shit you can pull. Okay, you're not making a political statement. It's just purely so annoying. And like to, to try and get your jollies out of that is it must have diminishing returns. Is all I'm thinking. The first time I met James Comey and I was getting his <laughs> a copy of his book signed. Not for me. It was for my parents who I was going to give this as, as a gift for. <laughs> I did at first try to get him to sign it for Donald J. Trump. That was cool. Everything you're talking about here is lame. But what I did was awesome. <laughs> he refused to do it. Prick. But fucking fed. Well, I'm so glad you made that clear, Swid. You know, th- this is also a, a, a trend podcast, and we need to know what's cool and what's not. I guess for me, the, the, this whole thing kind of harkens to the, the this idea of like the, the the prankishness of the American right right now. I would love to see Brick Suit. I wonder. I kind of wonder if he has someone he's traveling with do it. Like if like if a guy comes up to you in a Brick Suit. Number one, how many Brick Suits does he have? Is this a Batman situation? The closet is full of Brick Suits. But <laughs> someone comes up to you in a Brick Suit and is sort of like, yeah, can you? Uh, uh, can you tweet, uh, you know, or can you page someone with this message? You might say, hmm, I think this guy's up to something. So I would love to, to profile Brick Suit. If you're out there, Brick Suit, I'd love to do like 36 minutes in the airport with Brick Suit. You know, but like, uh, you know, this is just the latest hot prank. This is like the slap a teacher challenge, but for Republican pundits. I'm trying to find my uh, father in the airport right now. Now, would you please call out to Moe's Tavern for IP freely? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> No, who I want to profile is the person who has to sit in the uh, seat next to him for a seven-hour flight. That's what I want to know. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Exactly. All right, Swin, your final episode. It's been real. Thanks to you so much for joining us on Fever Dreams and all the best with what's next. It's been fucking awesome. I'm going to miss the hell out of you guys. Fever Dreams listeners, with Jesse, Will, and Kelly, you are in uh, resplendently good hands. Till next time. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.